Hello and welcome to the Bad Music Hurts Podcast, the show where my siblings and I chat about our favorite records. This is episode 10, and we're continuing our discussion on Kamazi Washington's The Epic. Today we'll be talking about disc number two. Hi, Michael. <laughs> How's it going? <laughs> uh, it's going well. It's going well. Just got back from a hot pot, so... um. With a belly full of hot soup, I'm I'm ready to dive into part two. Well, I have a belly full of pretzels, so I'm ready to go. <laughs> oh, God. All right. So, we're off to a great start. For those jumping in, we encourage you, if you haven't already, to listen to episode nine, where we cover the Epic's uh, disc one, or rather volume one, titled The Plan. Today we'll be talking about Volume 2, The Glorious Tale. And I guess what better way to start than to talk about what our first impressions are about this second volume, because I think we both agree that it is distinctive and different, drastically so, from what we heard and became familiar with on Disc 1, Volume 1. So, Michael, what are your first impressions, we'll say, of Volume 2? Um, so for volume two or disc two, rather, it's, I, I, I gotta say this, I think this one is my favorite of the three. Really? Yes. Um, I think disc one throws you in everything. It has a, the, all the songs have a super long time to breathe, but I think disc two is kind of where it's like, okay, it laid down the foundation. You kind of know what this album's about. And the songs are about th- three to four minutes shorter and it, it tends to just run a quicker pace and that's what i really like is i think it, it this one hits the pacing better than disc one where while i do like disc one some of the songs some of them i occasionally if they're not parts that you particularly like can can drag a little bit um albeit i still do like them but i like disc two because of the pacing it's something that i can put on and it's it feels like a normal album listen uh, I guess it's different from this one in the sense where this one, it's more like, okay, this can go anywhere. It's like one long shot from like, okay, it's like that guardian at the gate, right? It's just kind of like moving through this movie almost. It's kind of slow and wandering and it takes its time. But I kind of like how disc two is a little bit more business um, and how it gets down to things. And I also think disc two is the climax of the album. And then disc three is kind of more of the falling action and kind of more of the wrapping things up um in a sense but that's just kind of my initial take on it and i i'm, I'm curious what your um what your listening strategy to this is because mine is typically either poppy on one disc at a time or poppy on in the car and just seeing how far i can go first i'm going to springboard off of what you were talking about about the uh, pacing because i do agree that yeah it disc two is quantifiably shorter in terms of like individual song length than in disc one in disc one i'm looking here and four of the uh six songs are all 10 minutes or more i'm looking at 12 minutes 12 minutes 12 minutes 14 minutes and every bit of 14 minutes too closing in on 15 whereas in disc two only one song manages to get into the double digit uh minutes which is the magnificent seven at uh 12 minutes 46 seconds and all the other ones are let's be clear, still very long songs, but are in this king's court of massive, sprawling pieces are definitely shorter and by a measurable amount. So yeah, I would agree that in terms of individual songs, they tend to go a bit quicker than in disc one. But I would 
not say that disc two is my favorite disc. Rather that I, disc two contains some of my favorite material, but at the same time has some of the biggest valleys in my opinion, in the album. Like, some of my least favorite tracks are on Disc 2, so Disc 2 is, like, the extreme highs and extreme lows for me, whereas Disc 1 tended to remain at a very consistent, constant, great level for me. So I guess it depends on which way you like to slice it. Do you like peaks and valleys for those peaks, or do you like the consistency of just consistently great material without any drastic dips or rises in quality. So for me personally, the dips into uh, don't don't save it, but I do like disc two. I do. It is not my least favorite disc on the record. <laughs> Spoilers for disc three. <laughs> but yeah, no, I do like disc two a lot. And in terms of listening strategy, it it depends on what I'm doing. And this kind of actually circles back to what you originally talked about totally not months ago in the first episode when we were talking about how we first came across the record and what our initial thoughts were way back in the day when we first listened to it. And you mentioned that you used it more as a tool originally to facilitate helping your study habits and uh, study sessions. Or it sounds like also for long driving sessions as well that kind of just pass the time, but now have started gaining an appreciation for sitting down and listening to it. And it sounds like when you do that, you do individual discs depending on what you're feeling like. And that's more or less what I do as well. Like there's times where I'm in a major coding session that doesn't necessarily require a lot of cognitive power. I just need to churn through something, like churn through it. It's just manual labor. Like there's no way around it. It's at times like that, I find... Going through from start to finish is great because it just soaks up three hours. But otherwise, yeah, like I'll sit down in front of my record player and I'll listen to disc one or disc two. Probably not disc three, but you know what? Maybe it'll happen. Um, <laughs> for showing showing your cards there, aren't you? <laughs> uh, showing a bit too much, but um, yeah. But I I did like disc two. It was great to revisit it again and. Uh, I will say as like, I guess my final opening statement, let's say, before I turn it back to you to if you have anything else to tack on, that I was very adamant about the pacing of the vinyl releases disc one, volume one, being better than the digital quote unquote official order. I found the pacing to be better. I found the closer to be a more fitting closure to the tone of disc one. I didn't find rhythm changes made sense on disc one other than maybe a segue into what we'd be seeing more on on disc two. So I, I was pretty down, honestly, on the digital order, kind of turned my nose up to it. But um, I found, I, oh man, the vinyl pacing, the, the wheels start to come off the cart, so to say, and disc two in terms of the vinyl ordering because there's a lot of pacing issues particularly in the ending because it does not end in the magnificent seven instead disc two volume two ends with cherokee which is a shame which is a crying shame (laughs) not to again show my hand but cherokee's bad i don't like cherokee guys And that's due, no smart part to it not being an original piece from Kamasi or any other member of the band. It's like an old style, like 1930s song that jazz musicians like to cover because I guess uh, soloing over one of the portions of the song is tricky, but 
that doesn't that does not a good song make i do not like yes. Cherokee. but uh so it, it ending with Cherokee instead of magnificent seven which is a, a fantastic closure um to mm-hmm. volume two is a, a shame and then there's just various other pacing issues as well throughout so i am far more keen on the digital ordering this time around. So <laughs> one of these days I'll make the one true ordering that takes the order from the vinyl, but then volume two takes more after the digital release. And then who knows what I'll do with disc three, but we'll <laughs> we'll get to there when we get to there. But uh, that's all I got to say in terms of opening remarks do you have anything else to add i would uh i mean i don't i don't know what the vinyl ordering sounds like but from what you're telling me it doesn't i agree ending disc two of cherokee i don't think was a good pick i I like the digital ordering because i think disc one disc two are kind of uh two sides of the same coin or card because both kind of start um really strong but then they have some slow dips in the middle where like you kind of have like a chance to breathe uh, so to say, kind of like in a movie where you have a crazy action scene, it has you on the edge of your seat, but then you kind of have that moment where it's like, okay, you can catch your breath. Like, okay, all right, now we have time to kind of develop the story a little bit. Um, I kind of see disc one and disc two kind of being similar in that respect where disc one, we have Isabel in the middle that kind of slows scenes down after the change of the guard and ask him. In disc two, we have Leroy and Lanisha and Seven Prayers that kind of serve as that kind of similar breaks in between where not then you have the huge tent poles of henrietta our hero and the magnificent seven and misunderstanding kind of bookending then the disc similar to um i know you're you're not a huge fan of the rhythm changes on this one but i personally enjoy that one um to to close out this one but so i guess all, all that to say is i don't know what the vinyl ordering is like so i haven't listened to it but i definitely like how disc two kind of complements disc one in terms of that pacing but i think disc two does it better because it it decreases the song length a little bit so it keeps the the pace through the songs um a little bit quicker so you can actually kind of feel that pacing because it's almost like the first disc is almost songs are so long that it's it's almost hard to forget that like you are in the same song it just kind of all feels as one because everything is so long agreed there all right well i guess let's uh dive right into it starting with the first track off of uh Volume two. The digital release is Misunderstanding. Please call me Mrs. Understanding. <laughs> She's um, married now. <laughs> a proper married woman, understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually the opener for side B volume two on the vinyl release. So you don't get to misunderstanding until you flip the disc over, which is fine. But then it, it, like right off the bat, we start to get into pacing issues because I find or rather in this case, tonal issues, because I find the opening of this is such a fantastic callback to the uh, sonic tones of the first volume with mm. the choir doing oh. it is a perfect segue piece because of that because it doesn't linger on that for too long maybe half a dozen measures or something and then it starts transitioning into its own thing and it doesn't make as much sense with it being halfway through volume two then on the vinyl release but it makes much more sense for the digital release because we immediately come in and it's like yeah remember this this star sounds familiar but we're gonna we're gonna start doing something else now and it, it nice and delicately segues into the new tone that we're gonna be exploring on the second volume i 100 percent agree i like the opening of this song i really love how it's just 
it's almost completely freeform. It's like the all the instruments like stretching for a little bit before kind of the drums begin to drum roll and kind of bring everyone together. Be like, all right, now let's run. I love the beginning of that. Just it's it's just kind of like you say, it kind of is is calling back to disc one. It's like okay, let's we're gonna kind of bring back some familiar um, information here and then kind of introduce a new tone here for for setting the stage. Yeah, it's just I mean you you harken back to it, you get a lot of Kamasi's same kind of curt emotive rapid playing the saxophone going on in here too so it's it's very much kind of reflecting some of those aspects of disc one i really like that analogy about these instruments literally stretching it, it almost feels like you're coming back after an intermission like the band started like warming up they sat back down picking up their instruments all right, all right. and it, and now and now we're going run 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 and and it has like that quick pace to it so it, it like it does transition you back into it but then once you're you're in it, it it hooks you and you're into it and the the drive and the visceralness of the song starts to kick in and it it it's a great intro because of that. So again, like you missed that on the vinyl release, which is a true shame. But in my opinion, if I can talk a little bit about some of the solos on this, um, Igmar Thomas's trumpet solo on this, I don't think his trumpet has sounded better throughout this entire record. I don't know what it is, but it just sounds so crystal crisp, clear in this one, as opposed to the other ones. I don't know if that's just my imagination or if, Maybe the backing instrumentals kind of backed up a little bit more to let him shine through. Maybe he was just closer to the mic. I don't know, but it just sounds a lot better to me. Maybe it's the mixing. Maybe. What, what, do you have a timestamp on that? On when? Oh, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I do my homework, but only barely. <laughs> Particularly during the trumpet solos as well, uh, Brandon Coleman, who is the keyboardist, mind you not the piano player, the electric keyboard, he does some really interesting things in the back of solos when they're happening. Like, if you listen carefully to it, he's doing some really kooky, weird things. I don't know what kind of effects are on his keyboard. They're just so much interesting things going on. The trumpet sounds so good. Kamazi starts to transition to like kind of a new solo style for volume two where it's less strained and gasping for air like it is in volume one and it's it's actually more smooth and melodic and it's he's not quite there yet in misunderstanding there's still a lot of repetition to be fair but he starts like you start to see where he's gonna go a little bit more on volume two in terms of his improvisational style to keep things fresh throughout the record Though I will say before I, I turn it back to you that one of the things that I guess are interesting but I don't like is the electric bass solo from what's his name uh, uh Stephen Bruner or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I don't like that. So like this is the only solo on the record I dislike because when it comes in it's like like I don't know how else to describe this sound but it sounds like a mistake. solo is just fine but i could very much do without it but that is just a small blemish on what's otherwise a fantastic opener you know it's really interesting you bring up the the, the bass solo because i 100 agree that was one of the notes i have in here is that it's 
I find that bass solos are an uphill battle because it's so hard to convey the energy of a solo and meet up to the expectations of the energy of a solo of a bass. And I think it's done once really, really well in this album. And that's in The Magnificent Seven, which we'll get to that one. But I think that is a prime example of where the bass solo is like, oh, okay, they're they're going at this with the bass. Like they make up for the lack of volume with the bass and how bass tends to be more subdued and make up for that with almost the rapidness of it at which they're playing and just they're throwing everything they have at the bass. Whereas if a bass solo is just that, it kind of holds things up in my opinion. It doesn't carry the energy through in a solo. Oh man, I could not disagree more that it's only on the Magnificent Seven because literally in Misunderstanding we have Miles uh, Mosley. Forgive me if I'm saying his last name right, but uh, he plays the acoustic bass and ooh, mmm, that solo. It's like he's playing every single possible note on that acoustic bass at the same time, but like not quite at the same time. Like he's all over the thing. I could not believe how fast the notes are coming out of that massive acoustic bass he's playing on. He nails it in this. And that's one of the things I was talking about, about misunderstanding. It's like everything is so good in it, is the acoustic bass solo in it is so amazing. So, I mean, I would agree. I do like the acoustic bass solos in uh, The Magnificent Seven, but uh, let's not undermine the solo in Misunderstanding. Though, to be fair, it's not a super long solo but it's absolutely there and it's a killer one it's a shame it's uh, followed up by that terrible electric bass solo but you know <laughs> what can you do yes <laughs> no yeah 100 agree i to be honest i kind of forgot about that one in misunderstanding but uh, i'll revisit that song and try to listen for that one um one thing i really like on the end the, the choir joins back in on the uh, same melody towards the end to help close out the song and i love the um little residual whiny synth that kind of closes out the song on this one. It's just a nice little touch that I like because the synth is kind of not really present, I guess, very frequently. Or at least I think it's the synth that closes this out. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you know me because I'm a fan of Ludo. I'm a, I'm a sucker for the whiny uh, of a synth. <laughs> so that's all I got a misunderstanding, but um, I'm excited to get to Leroy and Lanisha. There we go. Oh, Leroy and Lanisha. I love this song. So Kamasi, I actually found an interview where he, he talks about this, but he, he said this was his homage to Charlie Brown. Oh, really? It was his version of quote unquote Linus and Lucy. <gasps> and I'm like, oh, I'm like, that's really sweet. I mean, he was saying how much he enjoyed kind of like the Graldi Trio and all that. And this is kind of his, uh, his version or his take on that type of song. And I know, like, I found the interview after I tapped up my notes and kind of listened to this. And I guess my take on this song is I view it very much as it's like kind of this interplay between the the two brass instruments here. I think it's the sax and is it the trumpet or trombone going on here? Uh, Yeah, the tenor sax and the trombone. So that's Kamazi and uh, Ryan Porter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the call and response in the chorus is wonderful. Yeah, it's it's very much where like they play off of each other in the song. It's sort of like a tennis or ping pong where one plays a part of the melody, stops, then the other one continues. And I kind of view this um, as like, it's almost like a conversation between the two players with their instruments. 
And I kind of view it as like, in my head, I kind of had this image of a Disney Fantasia song where it's like a guy asking a girl to dance, where it's like they start dancing and it's kind of like one doing a little bit of one thing, one doing a little bit of another. It's like you kind of get a sense of this like timid back and forth. But it's kind of nice. It's like as the song starts to progress, it starts to um, you start to see more of the character of the saxophone where it starts to take over. It's more long, melodic saxophone playing at like three minute mark. And then it starts to get more intense, kind of like Kamasi is almost like showing you a little bit more of his character or like that the male dancer showing a little bit of their character. But still, like you can sense a bit of restraint where like you're saying it, like it's not the the harsh gasping, screaming into a saxophone that we're used to from disc one, you kind of see the characters start to build out and you start to see, okay, these two dancers are really starting to get to know each other. Okay, they're starting to express more of each other here. And then towards the end of the song, the same saxophone trombone conversation piece is revisited and they both slowly merge into playing the same duet to close out the song. It's kind of like nice. It's almost like these two dancers in my mind are finally then like, in sync they kind of are feeling each other out in the, the beginning of the song but towards the end it's like okay now now they kind of know each other's moves per se and, and now they can dance as one dancer rather than two You're right, like they do sort of loosen up as the song goes on and you see more of their character and personality come through, especially near the end where it almost gets kind of like groovy a little bit. Like you can see that like it's everyone kind of opens up a little bit more. And also just from a uh, arrangement perspective, the song is a lot more subdued and intimate than most of the other cuts in volume two, because there's not that much players in this one. It's uh, more cut back. You made a mention about Kamasi sax it also doesn't sound as ragged here. It's still continuing that trend. And listeners will start to see, especially in this song as well, that uh, the key difference, at least that I see in volume two, is that everything's brighter, where the first volume is very somber and it's like importantness. It's very important and uh, excuse the term epic. Um, it's very grandiose, almost like an opera. And in volume two, everything feels more free and melodic and romantic. Going back to what I was talking about with the trumpet sounding so good in Misunderstanding, I'm talking from a like recording perspective. Uh, the piano here also sounds fantastic. Like the mechanics of the solo itself are very impressive and it's a beautiful solo. But it sounds so good, too. And I just don't know if it's me or if it's an objective fact, but my opinion stands that I've noticed how good each of these individual instruments sound in Volume 2 and not in Volume 1. So I, it's uh, definitely more individual 
uh, in that regard. Whereas in volume one, I was always in awe of like how everything sounded together and a culmination, you know, not necessarily like, oh, that piano sounds really good. That trumpet sounds really good. So um, definitely in here, the piano just sounds amazing. It mo- yeah, I mean, it might might be because of the, just the sheer, I guess, logistics of in the first disc, they have everything going at once and the logistics of um, the audio engineering of capturing everyone at once, because I, I, I don't know if uh, I kind of doubt that they probably proceeded with a very produced production approach to this, where you record each person separate. This album is very much improvisational and solo driven. So I bet you that they probably all recorded as much together as possible. So I wonder if that's what's going on. I bet you that they can just more or less capture a higher quality from the source and still allow the the instrumentalists to kind of be with each other. I remember reading, and we talked about this, I believe, in the first disc, is that they recorded for hours and like a month of just like nonstop recording for this. And so I bet you that there were probably spots where perhaps stuff wasn't mic'd up as well as it could have been, right? Or something like that, because... I bet you if you spend that long in the in the studio, you start to lose your mind a little bit. <laughs> With some of the things on this record, I, I would I would wager that as well. But who's to say? Yes. Uh but yeah, I gotta say, like, this was one that I guess re-listening through disc two changed my mind on a lot of songs here. Because in the past, disc two was like the Leroy and Lanisha and the Seven Prayers for me were were kind of like the lulls of the album where I was like, ah, I was like, I just kind of want to get to the tent pole of this disc. But upon second listen, or I guess a more deliberate listen of disc two by itself, I gotta say, I have a much greater appreciation for these two and doing some more active listening as opposed to just kind of having it on in the car. Um, and I, now I gotta say like Leroy and Lanisha and seven prayers. I really appreciate them now. I don't think they're up there as my favorites per se, but I appreciate for what they do for this disc as a whole and appreciate kind of like the more nuance and, um, attention they give. And I I think the quality, like you're talking, Mark, is that like the solos are you, you, there's almost a perceived quality increase here. Um, and whether that be because of the mixing or like we discussed the audio engineering, but, um, I don't know. It's just, I have a greater appreciation for these now. I definitely agree about gaining a new appreciation of Leroy and Lanisha in uh, our preparations for this podcast. We'll get to seven prayers. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we'll get to seven prayers. Fair. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's all I have on Leroy and Lanisha, but uh, I do have some thoughts on Rerun. So Rerun, I actually don't have a lot of thoughts on. I, I was trying to search for if this song was merely a reprise in and of itself, or it, I couldn't pinpoint what it possibly could be a reprising in disc one. But for the title of Rerun, I'm like, okay, there's, there's probably going to be something here he's targeting that he's trying to revisit and um, elaborate on or um, do a different twist on. I just couldn't pinpoint it. So unfortunately, I, I don't have much uh, much noise. Uh, here to go with this one huh okay because have you listened to harmony of difference kamazi washington's ep recently um not recently i've listened to it a couple of times but not enough to have songs off memory yeah uh by the way uh just tangent that is my favorite kamazi washington oh, creation i agree i listened to it, listened to it twice and it's it just felt good it just i don't know what it was about it it just i popped it on like i immediately was in the groove of it 
And mm. I guess that's- well, well, <laughs> we might have to save that and get back. Save it. Yes. <laughs> we'll, we'll, go, we'll circle back to it. We'll come to it. But the, the reason I bring it up is um, you mentioned that uh, is rerun supposed to be a reprise of something like because uh, it doesn't sound like anything up on the record yet thus far. What would it be reprising? Well, I to me, it sounds very reminiscent of Harmony of Differences Humility, which is the second track on the record. I don't know if it's necessarily because they're in the same key or if it's just the same or similar melodic structure, but to me, it is very much a sibling along with that piece. So I can't help but wonder when they were in this massive month-long, basically non-stop recording session for the epic, I think it's very clear that Harmony of Difference is some of the material he came out of there with because he said he came out with 44 songs. I got news for you, there's 17 on the epic, so he had (laughs) a lot of material. I would wager that Harmony of Difference was one of the pieces that he came out, maybe not entirely completed from the recording sessions, but at least fairly well developed. And if that's the case, rerunning here, if it is indeed intended to be a kind of reprise or a retake on something, which is a big if. We're making assumptions here based on literally nothing but the name. But Mm -hmm. before you even brought that up, I'm like, wow, this seems very similar to Humility in a good way. I like Humility a lot. So I've got very similar vibes going on in Rerun. Also, just the beginning itself is gorgeous. Again, you have the choir, but the strings sort of just gently swaying in the breeze. It's uh, it's soothing, it's peaceful, and the song itself is a little tense, which is unusual for volume two. So far, things have been a little bit more bubbly, but um, we kind of got a little bit more of the taste from what we were used to in volume one here with kind of a little bit more of a tenseness urgency going on. And then, of course, we got Kamazi continuing his uh, more melodic, unrestrained solo style that's been kind of characterizing his efforts so far in Volume 2. So it's it's very much uh, solidifying Volume 2 as being more melodic and romantic and less ragged and strained uh, like it was in uh, Volume 1. Which makes me wonder, I mean, Claire de Lune would probably fit a lot better on disc two than in disc three, because Claire de Lune, I feel like it's kind of Debussy's, uh, or uh, I guess a take on Debussy's um, piano tune, and it's, like like to your point, if it's more romantic and, and slow, it seems like to me, if I were to tweak with the order, perhaps I would... Get rid of Seven Prayers and put Claire de Lune in there instead? No, actually, no, I would say... Rerun belongs on disc one and say Claire de Luna take its place in disc two. Because then I feel like it flows a lot better where you have Misunderstanding and Magnificent Seven bookending it. And then you have Leroy and Lanisha going to Claire de Luna to Seven Prayers kind of as the 
the breath or the the nice relaxation in the middle of this to um kind of like some more intense and like the climax of the album right hmm <clears throat> I, I think you're turning me around to it, even though I don't like uh, spoilers. I don't like seven prayers. Um, <laughs> I, I do agree that that would make more melodic sense. And I do have a precedent for liking things that make more tonal sense in terms of like order structure, going back to our episode on Grand Hotel, where yeah. I thought that the <laughs> yeah. track ordering was um, suboptimal. Yeah, you really didn't like that. <laughs> I, I think you're turning me around. I think you're. T- <laughs> I think you're turning me around here. That yeah, Claire de Lune belongs on disc two, and rerun should be moved. I love rerun. Rerun should be on this record. Let me be clear. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I think, yeah, uh, that would that would solidify disc two's more melodic tone and approach. Maybe we could throw rhythm change on disc three for you. <laughs> Yeah, uh, listeners, look forward to our uh, unofficial track order that we're going to release for uh, our volume two conclusion. <laughs> Actually, I think that'd be a good idea when we finish up here is to each kind of pitch how we would tweak this. Oh, that's fun. For order after after disc three. Or shall we move on to your favorite? <laughs> oh, okay, let's move on to let's move on to seven prayers. Um, okay. <laughs> Michael, you can go first. Okay, like I said, I really have a new appreciation for Leroy and Lanisha and seven prayers on my more intentional listen here. And I really like how Seven Prayers gives us a nice break right before Henrietta, our hero, because Henrietta, our hero, is that grand, it's like the final closing to a grand musical, just bombastic. It's just, it's it's out there. So it's a lot of energy. So I think Seven Prayers is is nice, and I really would love if Claire de Lune were before it, but anyway. Um, yeah, like I said, it's Seven Prayers is is kind of a, the, the mirror to the Isabel on disc two here. I, I kind of view it as it's, it's the break then before it picks up again and kind of finishes the album here. And I like Seven Prayers because it is, I mean, the, the title is apt. It's taking the same melody uh, where you have, uh, say, the piano, cymbals, tambourine, drums, and bass kind of create a, like a free form, like ethereal tonal foundation for the song where they're not really doing anything specifically. They're just kind of like, maintaining the ambiance of the song and the whole i guess the the backbone of the song is the actual seven prayers where it's these recurring duets between i think the tenor sax and the, i think it's the trombone again and it's just the same melodies repeated just as if it were like someone actually saying for example like an actual prayer if someone were saying like rosary or someone were repeating in another religion their equivalent of say um the our father right and i really like this in the sense that different aspects of them get highlighted as the song progresses from the first one to the second one to the third one and then the final prayer welcomes the drummer in where the drummer comes emerges from being in this kind of like foundational freeform backdrop he kind of gets uh brought up into the final prayer and he kind of closes with the same ethereal foundation and whisks the listener away into the next song i just think it's like a nice nice transition piece
simplest, it is what the title alludes to. It's that same duet, kind of different aspects. Of like, okay, what if we concentrate more here and let's let's take it here the next time? It's just it's kind of fun to kind of see the little breaks where you kind of have this ethereal tone, and it's like, okay, we're revisiting it again. What else can we do differently here? I like just the general freeform nature of the backdrop of the song. Is that like there really are they they aren't doing anything really specifically at least not that not that my ear is able to pick up and it's just it is just kind of this this ambiance that they're setting and it's it's just nice i i, I really appreciate this one going into henrietta our hero mm. <laughs> i get what they were trying to do i understand i understand what the goal of this piece was i just i do not think that there is enough structure here and I do not think that their own play styles and writing styles are conducive to this kind of thing being more ethereal like this. It and it all of these pieces just do not come together and it does not land for me. There's no proper solos, there's no real melody to speak of. They just kind of all play a note together, play another note together and it's it's almost more of like an abstract art piece but in a bad abstract art gallery. <laughs> I mean, that, that I think that's a good descriptor. It is a little bit abstract, because you're right, the prayers are more one note at a time, and that's kind of how the melody goes, I guess. Um, but like you said, it, it, it isn't... It, I can see why you don't like it, um, but I have an appreciation, I guess, for it being different in that sense. It is different. There's no other song on the record like it. It is very unique in that there are no real traditional solos on the thing. There is no real chorus to speak of. It's just the instruments, which I guess, you know, to your point, there is a subtle beauty to that. But I, I just, I could do without the crescendos then in this because it, it just kind of continues growing and growing and growing and I lose... I lose whatever little song thread there is in that when it just becomes noise. And it just does, for me, become noise. Which is a shame, because there are, like, parts in this I really do like. Like, I love the beginning with uh, Cameron Graves' piano. Mm, it's, like, tickly at the beginning, and it's just like, ah, like a little twinkling star. It's beautiful. Yeah, so you're frustrated that more or less the buildup doesn't seem to, like... Uh, have a peak or go anywhere per se, right? Is that the the of- build up feels unwarranted and it doesn't actually resolve in a satisfying way. And I mean, maybe that's what they were going for. Maybe they were going for something that would more or less create that sort of tension or, or almost frustration. It sounds like in your in your respect of like, where is this going? Why am I not getting? this well i certainly am frustrated <laughs> so i mean like i i don't want to pull the i'm that kid in english class thing but maybe, <laughs> but maybe i mean maybe this was intentional in the sense that it since these are i guess supposed to symbolically represent kind of someone saying seven prayers right maybe this is kind of to evoke their their frustration of no response right and maybe that's why they're kind of concentrating harsher on some notes more than the others because i mean as one kind of tends to get frustrated they either kind of throw things or you kind of like grit your teeth and kind of um i don't know emphasize more some words more than another so i mean like maybe that's what they're going for is kind of more of a representation of something unanswered and like how 
like trying to represent that and kind of evoking that in the listener as well. I mean, it's just, it's, it's me trying to address maybe why they would um, have something that would evoke that feeling in you, I guess. I really do love the idea of the song. And I agree that having a more uh, loosely formed or unformed composition style is more conducive for that kind of thing because there is no real right answer there's just sort of emotions happening and flowing i i just it's not for me understood yeah maybe our listeners will feel differently may i i i'm sure a lot of people will agree with you on that but um for me it's just it's not it's not a highlight on the the record unfortunately yeah that's fair that's fair i mean like i said rerun for me was like a I mean, like, for me, it belonged more on disc one, and it should have been replaced with, with Claire de Lune. So, I mean, each each person kind of has those, and that, I mean, there's there's certainly enough songs on here to go around. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, you want to move on to Henrietta, Our Hero? Henrietta, Our Hero is the best song on the record, Fight Me. Mark, can I tell you a story? <laughs> <laughs> I 100% agree. So this is what I was alluding to is I believe that this is definitively the climax of this entire record. Agreed. Is that as you kind of have disc one, it's like the bombastic, it's setting a stage for this epic tale. And then it kind of all builds up and like, I mean, because disc three totally more or less kind of goes out with a whimper. It doesn't really have something to really close it out. So it's like Henrietta, our hero, and then Magnificent Seven as a follow up. It's like, those are the perfect, it's like the climax of this entire album. And it like all culminates in that. It's just, and I love how this is one of the few lyrical pieces on this album. And that's what's, what's bringing this in. And it does feel like you're in this musical and it's like almost like wicked, right? Where they like hoist the witch up or whatever. And every, all the craziness is going on and like in the defying gravity, right? It's, it's kind of like, it reminds me of that. It's like watching something. It's like, everything's coming together and, boom everything um it's just all the things happen then disc three is disc three so um <laughs> save it <laughs> um, so um anyway i i'll bounce it back to you i mean what do you so i mean we, I, we both agree that this is probably our favorite on, on the record and um in my opinion is the climax of, of the record as well oh man there's no opinion warranted for that it is the climax of the record structurally it it, it is it is the centerpiece um so Patrice Quinn, we've seen her uh, solo and come forward on some of the songs in the past, particularly rhythm changes more than anything. And she comes back again with a leading vocal role, which is very unusual. I think the only other song she has a, had a leading vocal role uh, up to this point in the digital ordering was uh, the rhythm changes. So she comes forward again with a vocal solo piece and she shines mm-hmm. in this. She co-wrote the lyrics with Kamasi and the piece is dedicated to a Henrietta Curtis. 
I've tried searching for this name and nothing of note comes up. At first I thought maybe Henrietta Curtis was like a historical figure, maybe of, of minor importance. So I can help fill in here, I guess, because I had the similar thought. I'm like, this has to be inspired by someone. And so I actually found an interview where Kamasi talks about this. So actually, let me kind of go through this whole story of me doing my investigating and coming across a, what I thought was the inspiration, but ended up being wrong. But I'm also going to argue <laughs> that it is somewhat influencing okay. this. Sorry, let, 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 let me take us on this journey. <laughs> so, um, in my poking around on the internet, I literally Googled Henrietta and went to the Wikipedia page. It was the first name that popped up. And I was surprised I have never heard of this lady called Henrietta Lacks. So this is a woman that has had an amazing impact on the biological sciences of cancer research. Essentially, her cells, they like took her cervical cancer cells. Um, so she died of cervical cancer and they took her cells. Um, and that's kind of an argument of whether or not they did it through consent or whatever, but they, they have their cells for the research and it was a foundation for an immortal cell line used for scientific research. So the growth of her cells, they were very like, it was unusual. Like most cells, it was like they would, it was, they spent all their time trying to keep them alive and couldn't do any research on them. But the growth of her cells in particular, that for our reason, they were more prolific and a lot easier than to get the opportunity to study. So the growth of her cells in particular enabled researchers to grow a polio virus and eventually create a vaccine. So I was like, I, I was reading this. I'm like, I'm like, okay, I, I don't think that this is particularly it, but I'm like, holy crap, how have I not freaking heard about this? Like, this is pretty cool. And so I was like, I was starting to think about it. I'm like, you know what? Actually, this kind of makes a little bit of sense. I'm like, how this could be a bit of inspiration of this. I'm mean, like, all right, so you have this lady, it's just a standard lady. She's not like a soldier with armor or anything, but then she more or less kind of like saves the world from a freaking pandemic of polio because of her cells. And so I was like, damn, I'm like, that's pretty cool. But then looking more into it, I got grounded in the sense <laughs> that I'm like, okay, my mind started going off into the kid in English class territory, right? So um, I actually um, found an interview with uh, Kamasi where he describes that, um, I'll read pretty much the direct quote here. So he says, Henrietta, our hero, is about my grandmother, who was a very powerful figure in my family. She was a little small woman, but she did a lot with very little. She struggled with some mental illness and stuff like that. But even with all that, she helped my dad and all his brothers buy their first homes. She got me my first car. She got my brother his first car. She did a lot for someone who didn't have much to work with. So um, that is ultimately the inspiration of this. And I guess I'm going to kind of wrap up this tale of me finding and thinking that I found the inspiration of the song, learning something really interesting about science. And... <laughs> um, so I guess let me let me uh, uh, wrap this all up. So like I was wondering, I'm like, if, if there was any influence of like Henrietta Locke's story on writing of the song, it, like in her own right, I mean, she really is kind of a hero for science as well. And Kamasi has a lot of heroic inspiration in this album. I mean, he has tributes sprinkled throughout with like Malcolm X and the Cherokee song. Um, and like now you got this like Guardian at the Gate, a very like, kind of heroic figure. And I, I kind of like my mind started wondering. I'm like, well. I'm going to take your reality and substitute my own. <laughs> um, <laughs> because, like, very much I, I, I liken it to um, Jimmy Buffett's A Pirate Looks at 40. Jimmy Buffett discloses that this is a more or less a eulogy for his real, quote-unquote, pirate friend, Philip Clark. But in the sense of that song, I couldn't help but feel, I'm like, 
Yeah, that's a eulogy for him, Jimmy, but I feel like there's a lot of autobiographical inspiration here because he lived very much that lifestyle as well, where it was kind of more tropical, nautical lifestyle. And I mean, he's a hopeless romantic. I can't help but uh, imagine that he was able to create that song because of his own life experiences and being able to relate to that. And um, using Philip Clark is more or less the nucleus or like pin- pinpoint to allow those ideas to grow, right? I kind of had the same idea here. I mean, I'm, I'm retrofitting it to my own reality, but I guess it, all this to say that while Kamasi says this is his inspiration, I can very much see it more principally this song is more or less about... I guess the the general everyday hero, and so it's uh, like heroes in kind of the untraditional sense, right? Um, here, everyday heroes that, like the song says, don't carry no armor or weapons, but I mean, their desire to fight through life's challenges and support others. In the case of Kamasi's grandmother, or in the case of Henrietta Locks, slipping that one in <laughs> to support others. I mean, it sets an example of like the strength and power that I mean others should should kind of strive for. So. That's my tale of (laughs) spiraling through the internet, trying to find what the inspiration of the song is, ultimately wanting to substitute my own reality for what is. Um, I just, it made me appreciate the song a lot more going into it and kind of reading more about it. But anyway, I don't want to take this on a complete tangent. Yeah, I mean, we could argue till the cows come home about authorial intent and whether or not that holds any more weight over one's own interpretation or not. That's a whole literal field of study mm-hmm. that I, I think is out of scope for yes. us. But um, <laughs> at, at least in terms of the piece itself and what I get out of it, th- there's clearly a deep respect level that comes across on on this piece. And it is the most melodic on the record, in my opinion, as well. The arrangement is incredibly simple and actually very traditional, uh, unlike a lot of things here, where it's the chorus. We have a single solo, Kamasi, and the chorus repeats. The chorus repeats with, again, another crescendo and a quiet, subdued chorus reprise again. Like, it is cut and dry, incredibly simple, incredibly repetitive, but the respect and care and simplicity of the song combined with Kamazi's solo style, which his his more strained, urgent style comes back in full force here, and the vocals, like, honest to God, lyrics, vocals... Uh, combined with the chorus, and it's almost like everything that we've explored so far on the record comes together in its truest, purest form. And it's all to dedicate this person, Henrietta, who up until just a few minutes ago, I had no idea (laughs) who this was, but I got a sense through the care and respect that Kamasi showed through his solo work and through Patrice's vocal work, it's absolutely spectacular.
it is a gleaming jewel on this record. It is my favorite song on the record, and it's one of my favorite songs of all time. It says everything while saying almost nothing. Like, there's almost no lyrics on it. It's very simple, yes. Yes, they're simple, but they're very effective. They're, like, laser-focused, meticulously made lyrics. I think it is really effective, too, because... It comes out of left field. You're like, what the heck is this? We've been more or less starved of lyrics throughout this. The only other uh, one we had is the rhythm changes in disc one. And that's what I think really adds to the effectiveness of this is that not every song has lyrics kind of like this and is trying to do a Henrietta or a hero. It truly stands on its own and real like i said catches one by surprise i mean how do you go i mean like you go from seven prayers to this like you really don't expect it i think that really highlights like you're talking about mark the the potency of the lyrics is that it's it's new it's novel i mean we're not used to it in this album we were you the listener by this point because you're we're more or less like an hour and a half plus into this album we're we're pretty comfortable with kind of like what this album is about what it does and then Henrietta, our hero, comes in and kind of really surprises. Um, uh, at least me. It, it comes in and is like, oh, yes, this song, right. It's my favorite. It is wonderful, especially with the title of the album, The Epic, and The Guard, and that whole storyline being supposedly a underlying current throughout the majority of the pieces here. Kamasi said so himself in an interview is during the composition work, he was imagining that, oh, that maybe this happens, maybe this happens, and oh, this is kind of like a twist on this part of the story that he was building off of these dreams that he had. And what makes this such a poignant piece as well, not only because of the reasons you mentioned, but also because, like, this is the first time that it's really not, like, the the guard in armor or samurai or anything. The the hero here isn't a traditional hero. It is just this this woman that, through her own everyday actions, became a hero in her own right. And that, that in and of itself also tied with being, like, the centerpiece, the crowning jewel of the record as a whole is just a wonderful statement i agree with you i think you said it best that the listeners just have to the very least even if this form of music isn't their cup of tea if they can at least get to the end of disc two because you gotta get to henrietta our hero oh of course and i think you're right i think you need the context of the rest of the album the song does stand alone by itself as a great piece of music but i think in the context of everything else going on it it's highlighted even more of course. I mean, you can't turn on a movie to a pivotal scene, and even if it is a greatly constructed scene, and acted scene, you're not going to get the full emotional impact. And so, I actually, the question I had here, I mean, it's, it, it may be a rhetorical question, but I'm curious, uh, who is your everyday hero? Huh. Who is my everyday hero? You always throw the softballs at me, don't you? <laughs> <sighs> uh this is going to sound kind of repetitive from what we talked about in previous episodes, I think with Amy, actually, but I would have to say our parents are, I mean, I know this sounds very cheesy, but I can't think of anyone else I would consider like an everyday hero. Honestly, maybe Amy and Chase now as well with like the, the amount of crap they're doing to take care of their kids and keep their jobs going. And it's just the amount of stuff they're juggling that and that our parents juggle is astounding. And that's very heroic to me. 
I would say, I mean, to to Mira Kamasi, I mean, our grandma on our father's side, her attitude towards life in her elder years was very inspiring in that sense and kind of conveying, I guess, kind of what the song is about, the fight, right? Just the everyday fight and kind of desire for life, I guess, is is kind of inspiring in the sense because it's it's easy to get, I mean, to look at life and get kind of cynical, but um, I mean, I just finished The Last of Us too, and that's one of the, the, the final closing things that Joel, the main character, says from that. He's like, I struggled with survival for a long time, but you always find something to survive for, right? It's kind of like that, that closing thing of that of that game. But um, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's, I see a lot of that in, in Grandma. Is that you always, she always found something to to fight for and have something to strive for. Like I like for I have to make it to Amy's wedding. I have to make it to this milestone. I really have to do this. And it's like that's inspiring to me. Is very much the the finding something to continue to drive when I mean like if you're 95 plus a lot of people lose their desire to live more or less, um, unfortunately. But she has more or less maintained it through a lot of hardship and struggles. So I guess uh, I mean it's Kind of a cop out, I guess, because it's very similar to Kamasi's in the sense of the grandmother. But I definitely see, I guess, a lot of the the everyday hero aspects in in Grandma in that respect. Mm-hmm. Well said. So we we made it. We're here at the Magnificent Seven, <sighs> and not Cherokee. We're not talking about the <laughs> vinyl release. <laughs> um, in the same interview, uh, Kamasi said the Magnificent Seven is actually about an homage to a band I was playing with a lot. That was the band I started writing a lot of songs for this album with. So that's what the Magnificent Seven is um, a, a tribute to, I guess. But I also see it very much kind of like the Guardian at the Gate. I view it kind of like a, a, almost like a Kill Bill, like the Magnificent Seven. That's what it kind of sounds like. <laughs> it sounds like something that belongs in Kill Bill, like um, just the, the, the squad of fighters. I can imagine everyone with their instruments marching to the gate. I find that kind of a fun visual to pin on this song. I didn't look too much into the background behind this song, but I do really appreciate the solo work on here. I think this is Cameron Graves' best performance on the record. He's the piano player, and he goes blazingly fast. Dizzyingly, heart-poundingly It's insane. He's uh, going to set the freaking keys on fire. understand how you have that endurance in your hands to move that 
fast for that long. Mm-hmm. It is physically taxing to do. Like, there's the intellectual difficulty of understanding what notes are in whatever keys uh, signature you happen to be at at this exact moment. Then there's also, yes, the literal physical reality of having to press down these fairly weighted heavy keys very, very quickly, nonstop. I mean, you're going to lose blood flow to your fingers eventually. Like, it is crazy how incredible this task was, his solo work on this this piece. And I have a note here. Everyone's best solos, question mark? (laughs) Everyone comes through with absolutely fantastic solo work in this song. Like, and to be clear, the entire record has great solos. There's great solos to be found everywhere, but particularly so in this, everyone comes through with just Fantastic quality, similar Mm. to uh, Cameron's piano work. Pay close attention when you get to Magnificent Seven, the solo work, because it is is a triumph. This is, that's what I was saying, this is my favorite bass work, too. This is, in my opinion, uh, the one that stood out to me. Um, Granted, you brought up some other great examples. This was the one that just stood out to me as I was listening. I was like, this, I'm like, this is a great freaking bass solo going on right now. It's like a bass solo that doesn't suck. (laughs) Around the world, bassists everywhere hate you. (laughs) I know they do, but I'm sorry. Like, that's just, that's my hot take. That's my hot take of the podcast. I 100% agree, though. I mean, the piano solo and that bass solo, like, oh, fantastic. What a great proper ending to volume two. What a fantastic ending. Not Cherokee, not the vinyl release. Let's not talk about that. But what a great cherry on top of volume two. I think you're turning me around to liking volume two than I, I sold more at the beginning of the, this episode. But I I still probably will go with volume one. But uh, man, volume two really does have a lot of very, very beautiful, special things in it. They're probably equal to me at this point. It'd be more a matter of what I'm particularly in the mood for. If it's a solo work, I probably would have to go with volume two. Honestly, in no smart part due to Magnificent Seven, but also there's the misunderstanding solo work as well, and there's a few others scattered throughout, but what a great topper. Oh, yeah. And I love the ending to this, just the curt notes coming out of the brass section just Mm-mm. ah yes <laughs> it's just yeah it's so good I, if there's one thing i love is the bappy brass bap, bap, bap. I, I want like a good brap in my brass <laughs> yes no it's 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 oh this this one's got the funk it's got the solos it's got the groove oh yes it's got the braps <laughs> just too amazing and a lot of fun to re-listen to um, but it was fun just to isolate out disc two. Like the only things I listened to were I listened to the rhythm changes, kind of get refresh myself how it flows into disc two. But then I just listened to disc two by itself. And man, what a what a great disc in volume. That's all I gotta say. 
Mm-hmm. And with that, I think we have closed the box on volume two. We are more than halfway through now. We have almost completely covered the epic. We have only one disc remaining. Volume three. It contains Cherokee. Send help. <laughs> I might not be okay. <laughs> but we will return soon. Hopefully not months after the fact um, to yes. cover volume two. But until then, Michael, it, it is always so good to talk to you about music. Thanks for for doing this no problem this this was fun i'm glad um you reminded me via text that we needed to do this because i forgot (laughs) very professional (laughs) um no but this this was a lot of fun i had a lot of fun re-listening to these and um i have a whole new appreciation for disc two now Mm -hmm. so michael when you're in the mood to record volume three just want to let you know i'm here All of the show notes and things we mentioned that you might want to look into a little bit more or images that you might be interested in that we may have referenced, uh, all of that will be in the show notes and your podcast player of choice. Or if you are listening on the web or if your podcast player doesn't show show notes, you can find it all online. It's all online at badmusichurts.com. That's hurts like the wave hurts or, you know, like the car rental company. Either of those is perfectly fine. And uh, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Take care. He said the Magnuson Seven is actually uh, about an, an uh, uh, about oh jeez I I can't I'm losing the the ability to speak Christ. Um, <laughs> <laughs>